start by reading verses 4 to 8. So Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 8, I'm reading from the original NIV, but I'm sure whatever version you happen to have, you'll be able to follow it through. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ, or the Messiah, there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. In last week's passage, we read about the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution of the Christians which followed, led by Saul of Tarsus. Go back to chapter 7, 59 through to chapter 8, 3. But in spite of the devil's schemes against the church, all that did was to provide a catalyst, in fact, for the spread of the gospel. Because as the people fled out from Jerusalem to take refuge in other places, they took the gospel with them. So in the wake of this persecution, we're told that many of the believers scattered, is the word there in verse 4, and they fled for their lives. Now the most popular destination was actually Antioch. Antioch in Syria, Syria, the country to the north of Palestine. And we're told that Philip also went north, but he didn't go as far as Syria. He went, verse 5 tells us, and I quote, to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. So who was this man Philip? Who was he? Well, I'll tell you who he wasn't. He wasn't Philip the Apostle. He wasn't the Philip that we first meet in the Gospels. Philip the Interrogator, as I call him. This Philip became known as Philip the Evangelist so as not to confuse him with Philip the Apostle. Two completely different people. This Philip was a Greek-speaking Jew who was, and I quote from chapter 6 and verse 3, full of the Spirit and wisdom. He was originally chosen along with Stephen as one of the seven deacons, you may remember, back in chapter 6 there. And their responsibility was to oversee the food distribution project, you might call it like a food bank, which was being undertaken by the church. But the ministry of both Stephen and Philip developed. And it's a shame to me that Stephen tends to be the one who seems to be remembered for all sorts of good reasons, and Philip tends to be forgotten because the two of them developed, their ministry developed, and they both became involved in preaching and performing miracles. You can see that in chapter 6, verses 8 and 10, and chapter 8 here, verses 5 to 6. Now, when you recall the hostility that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans, you'll appreciate how going to Samaria was a very bold move by Philip. So what were the reasons for this intense hatred and bitterness between the Jews and Samaritans, which ran so very deep? Well, simply put... So don't come running up to me after and say, I know one of the six reasons, Ray. Well, great, fine. I'm just going to give you two main ones, okay, because this is a preaching, not a Bible study. 
Simply put, there were two main ones, both going way back into history to the time when Palestine was divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And of course, it's from Judah that we get the word Jew. In, eight, in the 8th century BC, the Assyrians occupied the northern kingdom of Israel. And what happened as a result of that was that many of the Jews living there, who are normally known as Israelites, they intermarried with Assyrians and they intermarried with other Gentiles. So in Jewish eyes, the people in the kingdom of Judah, they contaminated themselves by doing this. There were no longer pure descendants of Abraham. And by the time of Jesus, most of the Israelites' descendants were living in the central district of Palestine, now called Samaria. Hence, they were called the Samaritans. So you've got Judah in the south, Samaria in the middle, and Galilee up the top. That's how it was all set up. You know that from the maps at the back of your Bible. Now, all the second reason is because although the Samaritans were Jewish by religion, they'd broken away and built themselves a temple on Mount Gerizim. And that was blasphemy to the Jews. As the scriptures said, there was only to be one temple, and that was at Jerusalem. And of course, this all comes out in John chapter 4, when Jesus talks to the woman at the well, as I'm sure you're familiar with. So as far as the Jews were concerned, for these reasons, the Samaritans were both physical half-breeds and spiritual half-breeds. You can imagine how the Samaritans felt about that. So, there you have it. This mutual hatred had been festering for centuries. For example, if a Samaritan saw a Jew walking down the street towards him, they would cross over to the other side. So as not to even pass them in the street. And vice versa. So, this is wonderfully reflected at the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which always makes me smile. Because Jesus says to the crowd, the Jewish crowd, he said, who do you think took the right course of action? And the expert in the law, it tells me in Luke 10, 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. That's how bad it was. And there you get it, enshrined in the parable of the Good Samaritan there. So in the light of all this, you wouldn't have thought, would you, that Samaria would be very fertile ground for the gospel of Jesus the Jew brought by a Jewish evangelist. What are you doing, Philip? You're wasting your time. There's no point going. So don't you think Philip must have really felt impelled by the Holy Spirit to go there? Kind of wanted to. Kind of been looking forward to doing what God had laid on his heart to do. But Philip, to me here, is a great example of obedience in the face of many reasons not to obey. He could have said, but I've got classic excuses not to go, hasn't he? Not to do what God had laid on his heart. But he didn't. Which makes me wonder, you know, are we guilty sometimes of not obeying God because we don't fancy the task? Shouldn't we rather be like Philip and trust God and step out in faith, just as Philip did. Because as we see illustrated here, that way, the way of obedience, brings blessing. And because Philip was obedient, God was with him. 
in a mighty and confirming way with miraculous physical and spiritual signs and wonders that we just read about. But again, please notice, as in the whole thing about the early church, it was not the miracles themselves that were important. It was the effects that the miracles had. The effects that the miracles had were that they drew the crowds. They gave Philip a platform. They gave him an opportunity to preach the gospel. See that in verse 12 when we get there. They broke down all the barriers that would have prevented Samaritans even giving a Jew the time of day. They caused the people to listen closely and attentively to what Philip had to say. And the result of this combination of the miracles and the message, the miracles and the message, was, as we've just read in verse 8, there was great joy in that city. Now I'm sure you remember the last words of Jesus to the apostles back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And I'm quoting, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, or the still kingdom of Judah, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this was like stage two of the rocket, if you like, being ignited. Stage one had happened in Jerusalem and Judea. Now we're getting on to stage two, and it's going to go on to stage three with the result of the persecution of the Christians. And the result of Philip's boldness and obedience in preaching the good news of Jesus the Jew, to the Samaritans, was that many became followers of Christ. And the wonderful thing we see here here is that this reunited them with the Jews who had become believers. So after all these centuries of bitterness and separation and, and hatred, they were being reunited through responding to the gospel to responding to this move of the Spirit, making them, as Paul would later write, quote, all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. Jews and Samaritans, together, all one. The message of the gospel had broken down the barriers between them. And by the time, actually, which is interesting, that Paul actually wrote those words in Galatians, which, remember, was Paul's first letter. I know Romans stands first, but it wasn't written first. Galatians was his first recorded letter written in about 48 AD. By the time he wrote those words, the Gentiles would be included as well in all one in Christ Jesus. Even more shock horror to the Jewish mind. The Samaritans becoming all one with them was bad enough. But the Gentiles, hey, come on, that's beyond the pale. But by the time Paul wrote these words, it had happened. You see, the power of the gospel to break down barriers, to reunify old enemies, this restored unity between the Jews and the Samaritans who'd become followers of Jesus was cemented. It was cemented by the arrival of Peter and John from Jerusalem, which we'll come on to later. And this bit makes me wonder, do we share the gospel with everybody? Or just with certain groups of people? Which groups in our society do you think are our equivalent of the Samaritans? 
And then we need to ask ourselves, don't they all need to hear the gospel message? And when they do, should we be surprised at what happens thanks to the work of the Holy Spirit? So let's move on to the second section of this passage and look at verses 9 to 13. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. So before Philip arrived, Simon the sorcerer was the big cheese. He was the celebrity. If you think celebrities are something that the 21st century invented, you haven't read the Bible. Here he was, Simon the sorcerer. He had the city at his feet. He was the big cheese. He was the big celebrity. He practiced sorcery and amazed all the people of Samaria with his magic. Don't you think he must have reveled in it? Reveled in the limelight that his satanic powers afforded him. So much so, he'd become conceited and arrogant, as we read in verse 9. He boasted that he was someone great. Must have been heady stuff for Simon, though, don't you think? Being fated and receiving adulation from rich and poor alike to the point where they all gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power, known as the great power. Can't you just see him strutting around the city, enjoying every minute of the celebrity status that his magic had brought him, to the point where he was virtually worshipped as some sort of Messiah or God. The city was at his feet and he could have anything he wanted. But then, suddenly, out of the blue, something happened that changed the situation completely. Suddenly, the people had stopped fawning all over him. I imagine him wondering, why? What's going on? What's changed? It can only be the arrival of this Philip person. I'd better go and see what's happening. So off he went. And as we read, when he saw what Philip was doing, couldn't believe his eyes. So impressed that along with hundreds of others, it tells us in verse Pardon me, in verse 13, he, was be- he believed and was baptised. Trouble was, it seems that his belief was based on what he'd seen rather than what he'd heard. Let's look at verses 14 to 19. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They'd simply been baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, 
he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So, I repeat, it seems that Simon's belief was based on what he'd seen rather than what he'd heard. In other words, it was based on the signs and wonders rather than on the gospel message that Philip was preaching. You see, there doesn't seem to have been the sort of change in Simon's life that there should be when a person truly repents and gives their life to God. You see, Simon still hankered after power. He still hankered after prestige and all the trappings that went with it. If there was a greater power than he'd experienced so far, he wanted it desperately so that he could use it for his own ends. So when Peter and John arrived and they began laying their hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit, Simon was so amazed by what he saw that he wanted the power to be able to do that himself for his own honour and glory. How did Simon actually know that they'd, quote from verse 17, received the Holy Spirit? How did he know? For me, it's because they must have spoken out loud in tongues praising God in languages that they hadn't learnt, as at the Jewish Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In my experience, praise tongues, as I call them, in personal worship of God, is something every born-again Christian can experience every day. It happens when we allow the Holy Spirit, who lives within us, to flow out through us and to come upon us, inspiring us to speak in a language that we haven't learned in praise of God. Remember how the visitors to Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 2 exclaimed, how is it that we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues? And be careful not to confuse praise tongues with message tongues, as I call it, which is one of the nine gifts of the Spirit, which are all, all nine gifts are for the benefit of the church, not the individual, completely different to what we see in Acts chapter 2 and to what we see here. Incidentally, this Samaritan Pentecost would be followed by the Gentile Pentecost, which occurred later at the home of Cornelius, which when we get to Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 46, you will see. So, having heard these people speaking in tongues, it was obvious that something had happened to them and he wanted to be able to cause this to happen to other people for his own, to rebuild his own reputation. So as money was no object to the man, he went to Peter and John and asked them, how much? How much? How much is the title of today's sermon, if you've had a chance to glance at the bulletin? It's also the title of the chapter in the book. How much did they want? Verse 18. How much would it cost for him to be given the same ability they had so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit? He was prepared to pay any price to refocus the city's attention on him so he could bask once again in the limelight and adulation of the people. And that, to me, is proof positive. There'd be no change in his heart. And, you know, in my experience, it is possible for people to profess belief, even be baptised, without true repentance having taken place. The test is, can people see the fruit? 
Can people see the fruit of repentance in our lives? Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. In other words, has there been a fundamental change in our attitudes, in our priorities, and in our lifestyles? And when we have truly repented, are we caught up with signs and wonders and Christian celebrities rather than knowing God's word? Sadly, in my experience, it is often the former of the two. Let's go down to verse 20 and read 20 to 25. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. You see, as far as Simon was concerned, everything had a price. Everything had a price and could be bought. So he must have been astonished when Peter rounded on him with such strong words. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Peter went on to confirm what Simon's problem was, verses 21 and 2. No change had taken place in his heart and he needed to repent. And the Holy Spirit gave Peter a word of knowledge, another of the nine gifts of the Spirit, which enabled Peter to expose Simon's innermost thoughts and motives as being full of bitterness and captive to sin. He was bitter and resentful at having his status in the city usurped by Philip, and his own selfish desires still made him a slave to Satan. Simon's reaction to this rebuke reveals his attitude. Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me, verse 24. He didn't repent and ask God's forgiveness. Rather, he was more concerned about avoiding God's judgment. Now, here's an interesting thing. If Peter hadn't exposed Simon's wickedness publicly, he would have become a member of the Samaritan church. And no doubt he would have caused it a lot of problems. But Peter knew that this man had a problem and it needed dealing with then and there. And now as we come to communion, let's go back for a moment to Simon's question, how much? Some of you know that I've been involved in cricket scoring for a number of years and in fact I was fortunate enough to actually score the World Cup final at Lords this year. Yes, that match. And uh, on the uh, course of going around the, the, the county circuit, I fell into a conversation with the wife of one of the scorers of a particular county. And her philosophy of life was how much. And she was quite proud of it. And she was telling me how she went, when she went to a particular county uh, to score, uh, to be with her husband, who was the scorer, she said to the members, how much to let me into your lounge? 
She wouldn't accept that the lounge was only for members. Well, okay, but how much do you want to let me in? And I can imagine her asking, how much does it cost to be saved? How much does it cost to be cleansed from my sins so I can enter God's presence and be with him forever? But our salvation can't be bought. We can't become a member of the kingdom of God by using our credit card. We can't become a member of the kingdom of God by doing good deeds or doing more good deeds than bad deeds or in any other way you care to name. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is clear, isn't it? For it's by grace you've been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In other words, say, I achieved it myself. Salvation is a grace gift. It's a grace gift from God, given at his expense. In other words, salvation is free, but it is costly. Salvation is free, but it is costly. So how much did it cost to provide our salvation? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 tells us, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You were bought at a price, which means we belong to God and therefore we should do what pleases him in our lives. And that price was the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that we come to remember where he shed his precious holy blood so that whoever we are, whatever we've done, we might be cleansed from our sins and know fellowship with God forever. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19 tells us, quote, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, in other words, money, that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 7 tells us that, quote, The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. While Revelation 4, 5 says that Jesus, quote, loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. This table that we come to is a heavenly instituted, earthly reminder of just how much, just how much God loves you. So much that he shed his blood for us all. The question is, how much do we love him in return? And as we come to the table, I'm going to invite Becca and the band to come and to lead us in some songs and in a time of worship. And during this time now, it will be great to hear lots of voices from all over the congregation, just briefly bringing your thanks to God for this, of his love for you, shedding his precious blood, for you, what he has done for you. So please feel free to do that as we come and we worship him who shed his blood for us.